Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company Podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
A teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Hi, thank you for tuning in today. We're going to talk about basic advocacy tips today. Basic advocacy tips for supporting your child in special education. I'm gonna to come to you with five basic tips that I think that you can apply in your day-to-day -day life to make your special education advocacy a little bit more effective and hopefully a little bit easier. The first tip that I'd like to share with you is to be involved. Now, don't only be involved in your child's IEP team, but also be involved in your child's day-to-day -day education. So why do we need to be involved? Well, first of all, I think that the federal government intended for us as parents to be involved in our child's education. In fact, a few years ago, I went back and I did a scan of the law, of the federal law idea, the Individuals with Disabilities in Education Act. And what I found is that the word parent is mentioned over 450 times in the law. What does that tell us? That tells me that the federal government intended for the parents to have a spot at the table and for the parents to really get to meaningfully participate in meetings. We are the experts on our children. The schools don't know, they know the teaching strategies, the pedagogical strategies, the history of special education. They know how to um, implement specially designed instruction and how to modify lessons and um, how to support the special area teachers in, in helping our children access education but they don't know whether our children um, play basketball or like applesauce or um, get along with their cousins. And those things can all be very, very important to help them kind of figure out the puzzle of the child and ultimately to educate the child. So it's extremely important that we as parents stay involved. Now, what does it mean to be involved at school? I think a big thing to being involved at school is to be there. Now, sometimes we can't be there because we have younger children or because we have um, work obligations or anything else. And I think that's okay. One of the advantages to being at school is knowing the people at school. And you can meet the people at school and develop relations, relationships with people at school by not necessarily being there, but by pseudo being there. So one example of that would be to call the librarian and say, hey, do you need any help? I see that on the insides of the covers of all of the books, you have the accelerated reader points written. And I also see that you put that book tape on the spine. Surely that takes a lot of time. Could I take 20 books home every night? And could I help you with that? And then as you're communicating with the librarian, you'll develop a relationship with the librarian. You could volunteer at night. Um, certainly there are festivals, there might be math night, there might be um, an extracurricular that you could coach or somehow get involved in. All of those things are going to give you more insight into how things go at school. If you can get to school during the school day, the things that you're going to get to observe are not only your child's education, whether or not your child um, you know, is getting 100% on the spelling test, but you're also going to get to see um, some cultural things like 
where your child sits in the room or how your child is behaving at lunch, who your child's friends are at school, those kinds of things. That provides really, really valuable information as you're planning and implementing the IEP as a parent that's part of the um, part of the team. Another really important way to get involved at school is by looking at your child's work. Look at that homework that comes home every day. Look at communication that comes home from the teacher. Look at um, the daily work, not only the progress data from that you get from the special education teacher, but kind of look to see what your child's doing. If your child has um, a more moderate or significant disability, you might think that the school isn't giving your child enough work, or you might think that the work is too hard and that it's not being modified appropriately. Um, if your child has a specific learning disability and um, maybe there's too much print on the page, then you can say, well, gosh, how did you do on that test if the page was so, so busy? You know, things like that. It's really important to look at the homework, to look at the schoolwork that comes home, to see how you can weigh in on that as a team member. And ultimately, you might not do anything with the information, but it's good to be informed. Another thing that is extremely important and probably the most important is to really dig in to the IEP itself, to dig into the goals and to dig into the progress. Now, I actually recommend that parents progress monitor themselves. We will do another podcast on progress monitoring, how to set up the progress monitoring charts at home, how to actually keep the data, how to work with your child on your child's goals, what that looks like. Maybe we'll even do one on behavior, like how to get your child to actually work for you, which is different than getting your child to work at home. But for purposes of today's podcast, I'll just say that I think it's really important that you work with your child on your child's specific IEP goals at home. And then that you also look at the progress data that comes home from school. And if it's not coming home from school, well then there's an opportunity for you to communicate to your child's IEP team, which becomes extremely important. Um, so I think it, you know part of being involved in your child's education is knowing where they are on their goals and in their um, related services. So that's being involved at school. What about being involved in your child's IEP team? I want for you to hear this very specifically. You are an equal partner in your child's IEP team. You should be meaningfully participating in IEP meetings. Now, what's that look like? For some of you, it might just be weighing in on what your child um, does at home what your child's interests are, what your goals are for your child's future, um, what your child's goals are, behaviors that you see at school, concerns that you have about school. Those kinds of things are extremely, extremely important. I oftentimes go into IEP meetings for parents when I'm coming as a special education attorney. And I spend a lot of time in the meeting basically provoking empathy saying to schools, maybe it's a school refusal issue, and I have to really explain the child's disability and really explain the why 
behind the, behind the child's school refusal. Say, this is why the child doesn't want to come to school. The child is so fatigued. Or explain um, the frustration that a child has um, average reading comprehension, but still feels like he or she cannot read. And explain the, the psychology behind that so that the schools really understand who the child is because children, they're good fakers. They can fake anything. And sometimes they come home and they're saying things to their parents that are so, so different than the way that they're acting at school. And then they aren't getting the whole value out of their special education services. So it's very important that you just come and you be the advocate for your child. But there are a lot of other ways to be involved as a team member. You might have information from other professionals. You might have information from um, outside professionals like um, occupational therapists, physical therapists, O&M providers, those sorts of people. And it's important that you provide that information to the team members that are at the school so that you're communicating. Um, also, I want for you to actively participate in IEP meetings. That means asking questions, that means disagreeing sometimes. That means asking if you don't understand something. That means inserting your own experiences about what's happening at home or things that you've observed at school because you've been there, those sorts of things. It's very, very important that you weigh in on the document and on the special education itself. So that's number one, be involved. Not only it's not only is um, an IEP team member, but also by being at school and getting involved in the day-to-day -day education. Okay, moving on to number two. Number two is having a basic understanding of special education law. Now that's super overwhelming, super overwhelming. I mean, there's volumes and volumes and volumes of laws. And then not only is there the federal law, but there's state laws and there's regulations. And I don't wanna even say anything else because I'm probably intimidating you just by talking about it. And I think we all as special education parents feel overwhelmed. We feel um, like we don't know, and that is not a good way to feel. It is not a good way to feel like you don't understand something and like you just don't know it because we're adults and we're used to knowing things. Um, and I want for you to know that that is extremely normal. And as a result of that feeling, people get extremely frustrated. And that is also very normal. And we don't get anywhere when we're living in a sense of frustration. So the tip of knowing the law is really because I want for you to have a framework from which you can develop your advocacy. We can't do it without a framework. So let me give you a little real life example that's outside of special education. So I love to swim, I love to dive. I used to be a diver and a swimmer. And so we're gonna talk about a diving competition. So the first diver goes off the board and he does a can opener with a um, really messy approach. That's the like one, two, three hop thing that you do on the board. Really messy, doesn't look like a pro at all. Looks like, um, a, a, like a, a beach bum and flings himself off the board, has this ginormous splash, um, gets the lifeguard wet and it's just messy and ugly. 
And then the next person goes off and they look like Greg Louganis. This beautiful approach, very graceful, smile, a pleasant smile, hair looks nice. And let's say maybe they do two and a half flips in a beautiful pike position with pointed toes and they go straight into the water with very little splash. And it's just a lovely dive. It looks like ballet in the air. Well, who did the better dive? We don't know because we don't know the rubric. If we're having a splash competition, the first person won. But if what we're grading the person on is their gracefulness or um, the, the aesthetic of, um, of traditional diving, like Olympic diving, then obviously the second diver won. We don't know the framework. It depends on the rubric. And when we use a law, we are using a rubric. I always tell my clients that I am advising them under the shadow of the law. Now, what does that mean? I think most laws are, very few laws are very black and white. If they were, attorneys wouldn't have jobs. So most laws land someplace in a framework, right? Like, you know, if, if um, another non-special education matter, let's talk about um, uh, child support, for example. So child support is math. But at the very beginning of child support in every state, we have to decide what the mom's income is and what the dad's income is. And that can be a little wishy-washy. There can be bonuses, there can be um, somebody that's unemployed or underemployed or whatever. And so if somebody goes to an attorney for child support, they're probably gonna say, well, if they do your income at this number, it's gonna be here. And if they do your income at this number, it's gonna be here. So I think it's probably reasonable to say that the child support number, once all that math is done, is gonna end up at this specific place. So there's kind of this shadow that the law casts where we look at what's reasonable between these two parameters. Even something as very specific as child support, which is math. So when we look at the shadow of the law, we kind of have to know that legal framework. We have to know where we're trying to um, plug in because if we try to fit within those boundaries of reason, we're going to have more effective advocacy. We know what's expected. We know what's mandatory. We know what is required. And that helps us to kind of um, plug in our child's story. I'll tell you one tip, and this is a huge tip that you learn your first week of law school, and I always give it to parents when they are advocating for their child in special education. In law school, if you're writing an essay, you IRAC your essay. I-R-A-C. You state the issue, the rule, the application of the rule, and the conclusion. I-R-A-C. You I-RAC it. What's the issue? The issue might be, does this child qualify for special education services as a child with a specific learning disability? Maybe it's dyslexia. Is the child going to get an IEP for dyslexia? That's the issue. The rule. Well, we would talk about the eligibility rule. This is when you have to know the law. How do you become eligible for special education for dyslexia in the state of Maryland, let's say? Then we have to look at the rule. We have to familiarize ourselves with the rule in order to then get to the part where you're the expert, the application because you've taken the child to get the evaluation. The, the, the kindergarten teacher told you 
that they suspected a reading situation um, or a tutor or somebody else. And so you had your child evaluated. You have that A, that application. You know the child. You know how dyslexia is affecting your child. You know your child's behaviors. You know what the pediatrician has said. You know what your babysitters have said. You know what neighborhood parents have observed. You know your child. So you get to plug in the A, but you can't do that without the rule because you don't know what you're talking to. And then the conclusion obviously is where we get to say, and therefore we suggest that the child qualifies for a specific um, learning disability or whatever we're asking for. I-R-A-C. Now I'm going to give you a lot of different legal frameworks if you continue to follow along. So that's a great tip if you are just craving information. I'm, I'm happy to provide it to you. That is one of my goals, certainly. There are also great websites out there. I'll put one website in the show notes. It's rightslaw.com. Pete Wright is an attorney that's tried a case in front of the United States Supreme Court, and he has a voluminous website with a great search box with lots of information, and that would be a really good place to start looking um, for information as well. Okay, so we've gotten through two tips. The third tip is to keep really good records. Now, if you are a school supply geek like me, you just got really excited. I have a color-coded um, series of binders with these color-coded paper clips. I'll do a whole podcast on how I recommend that you keep records. Um, but I love school supplies. And so I have color-coded stuff. It's got tabs. It's written in different markers. Um, if I lose one of the markers from my IEP binders, I get very upset because then I've got to go just and find the exact same marker. Um, so this makes me really excited. For a lot of you, you're like, oh no, how am I going to keep all of the records? And that's okay. It is okay to feel overwhelmed by it. And it's okay to do a not so good job. But the key to this is that it is going to help you with your advocacy because you're always prepared. And that's the key, being prepared. An attorney told me, one of my mentors many, many years ago, that the best way to stay out of court is to always prepare like you're going to court. You know, attorneys will always say, document, 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 keep your documents. And I'm not good at it in any other facet of life. I don't know where copies of bills are and that sort of thing, but I am very good at it in special education because I know how important it is in special education. So what I recommend that you do is that you keep a copy of every document that you get. So the big ones, the actual IEP and the minutes from the IEP meeting, like the, the um, some people call it a PRO1 or a prior written notice document, a conference summary, those things where they summarize what you talked about in the IEP meeting, I would keep those. So the actual IEP, the minutes from the meeting, um, evaluation reports, obviously you want to keep. If you ever need an attorney or an advocate, the first thing they're gonna say is, well, bring me a copy of the current IEP and the last evaluation report. That's what I always want when somebody comes in first. Um, but you also want the other formal documents, the eligibility forms, um, the progress monitoring sheets, which are extremely, extremely important, test scores, um, you know, from state standardized tests or even um, some of the commercialized reading and math, um, just kind of benchmarking tests like STAR. 
those kinds of things. All of that is important to keep because it all fits in as the puzzle to who the child is, how the child's performing, what the child needs in special education. It's all a puzzle and we need all of that information. Then in addition to that, I would keep emails and correspondence to and from school. Now, you know, some people keep like every note that comes home every single day. If you're lucky enough to get the notes home every day, um, some people keep those. I don't keep every single one of those and I don't know that that's necessary, but I do think it's helpful to keep ones that show a pattern. So if you've got a pattern of um, behaviors on gym days, or um, you know, behaviors when you're sitting next to a certain person, or um, bad data if it's taken on Friday. Then start keeping every Friday's report um, because then you're looking at a pattern. Now, what's important to know is that patterns will reemerge. And so if you notice a pattern of bad data on Fridays, and you start keeping all of the notes from Fridays because you want to be able to document that bad data happens on Fridays. Well, that might stop happening and you might have to go another two years before it starts happening again. And you're gonna search and search and search and be like, where's my thing on bad data on Fridays? I can't find it. So make sure you label stuff because life happens and we forget what happened and we forget if it was third grade or fourth grade when we were having bad data on Fridays and then all of a sudden we can't find the information. So I have notes all through my mic, you know, this was the year that this happened or this was the year that that happened or don't read this, it'll make you sad. Um, you know, those kinds of things. So um, as you're keeping records, make sure that you're organized and that you are kind of telling yourself why you've kept something specific. I also recommend that you keep your notes. Your notes from meetings, any notes that you've got um, questions on. Um, so you might take a document and call an expert that's outside of the school, like a physical therapist, and you might just write like the name of a different test that you want the child to take or something like that. I recommend that you keep that because you never know um, what you'll remember down the line and you also never know why you might need information. Um, and then finally, something that a lot of people don't keep that I recommend you keep with your special education documentation is student work. And the reason that I think that you should keep student work is because it shows where you are with your present levels um, in real life. So, you know, we can read all the data we want, but does it really tell us about the child? Well, it should. But if we can like watch a child's handwriting progress, or if we can watch the errors in a reading passage, or if we can watch even a video of the child's um, speech, that kind of stuff, we're gonna have a better picture because we're gonna get to experience it with our own eyes, not just some kind of graph or percentage of data, that sort of thing. Um, so I think it's really important to keep student work as well. Now, why are you keeping this? As I said, um, the best way to stay out of court is to prepare as though you're going to court in the first place. It might not be court though. It might just be looking at the end game. You know, if you are super concerned about your child's transition to adulthood and you've talked about it even in third grade, then you might at some point need to prove that you've been talking about it since third grade. Stuff like that. And it might not be super conflictual. You might need to just remember something. You know, I don't know when we had that evaluation. I don't know when he got diagnosed. It could become important for future eligibility. Um, you're keeping the documentation because you might need it in the future.
And that's the primary reason. So that's number three, keep good records. Let's move on to number four, which is to see yourself as a team member. Now this is something that um, is probably maybe the most overwhelming of all because you probably don't have a degree in special education and you probably are not a school principal and you probably are not a psychologist. And I always tease that, um, you know, I'm a, the parent of a child that has Down syndrome. And so my child has a um, speech and language impairment, receptive and expressive, and he has a cognitive impairment and he, um, has outside, he doesn't get it at school anymore, but he has PT and he has OT and he has ADHD as well. So we have behaviors and, you know, I always tease on like a, a um, part-time audiologist when I'm really not, but he's got a hearing impairment. And so I know a lot about audiology, the things they make you learn, but that's overwhelming. And if we try to learn it all at one time, oh man, do we get overwhelmed? Because for a lot of us, we're managing medical stuff, um, social stuff, behavioral stuff, therapeutic stuff, and then school. And school hits like a bomb. And for whatever reason, sometimes it feels conflictual and it feels like there's this lack of trust and um, it makes you kind of mad. Um, and I understand that. And so sometimes it's hard to see yourself as a team member. But you've got to remember that the federal government said we're team members and that's a really, really good thing. And so it's kind of like when I read in a golf book that the secret to golf to feeling the secret to golf is confidence and the secret to feeling confident in golf is to dress the part. And I was like, oh, OK, well, I can go and get myself a golf outfit. Yeah, I like it. So dress the part in special education, dress the part. Get yourself enough knowledge so that you can feel confident enough to be the part of the team. And I'm going to tell you the secret. You already are an expert. You're an expert on your child. You know your child. And the purpose of the law is to prepare your child for future learning and adult life. And so you've got that totally handled because you know your child. And if you go in just with that baseline kind of feeling in your gut, that baseline confidence, you're already gonna be set out for success. But in addition to that, what are some other tips that you can use to see yourself as a team member? First tip, collaborate. You have to collaborate. And what's collaborate mean? You've gotta to work together. Now, that does not mean that you're avoiding conflict. That's not collaborate at all. If we were avoiding conflict, we would just put somebody in charge and say, okay, what are we gonna do? The reason why we have teams, the reasons why we work in groups is because we come in with a bunch of different ideas and some ideas we think are good, some ideas we think are bad. Sometimes two people like something and two people don't and you know we've gotta work through it. But at the end, we work through the stuff. And as we work through the stuff, we come up with a really great plan. So we have to collaborate. Another thing is that we have to offer to help. So teachers and school staff are exhausted and we are sending them our kids. And what we can't do is we can't send them our kids and be like, all right, figure them out. Good luck. See you later. Bye. Because we're the part of a team. And as a team, we have to support the child. Ultimately, together, we're supporting the child. The child's at the center of this. And so if we want the child to succeed, sometimes we have to help. 
So we might say, well, how can I reinforce that goal at home? How can I work on that goal at home? What could I send in from home, send into school that would help? Do I need to send in some kind of motivator? How could I support my child at home emotionally so that my child can access the school better? What do I need to say to my child about school refusal? How can I help you to help my child? How can I fill in a puzzle piece? How can I get continuity? All of those things are really, really important. We're a part of a, a team and we want to get the information to the school. We want to get, we want to build the child up so that the child has a consistent um, environment between school and between home. And we have to help the school team um, if we expect the school team to help us in helping the child. Because again, the whole secret is um, keeping the child at the center. A huge piece of um, feeling empowered, if you're gonna be on a team, you have to feel empowered to be on the team. A huge piece to that is balancing the information, right? Um, teachers have gone to school for special education, so they get to put you know, a weight in going to school for, edu for education. They have done this for so many years, so they've got experience. They have had a lot of other kids with your child's profile, probably. And so they get that kind of extra um, experience notch. And before you know it, you feel like they know so, so, so much and they've got this weight of information on them. And you're up here in the clouds like, I have no idea. I don't really, all I know is my kid. And that feels really hard. And so the secret to that, to fixing that, is to ask questions. If you don't understand something, they still use acronyms that I don't know because they've learned something new or because, you know, something has a different word, an old word, new word. I don't know what it is, but I'm like, I don't, what, what does that stand for? I don't know what you're talking about. You have to ask, simply ask. Can you explain that again? Or I know you've explained that before. Can you do it again for me? I'm sorry, <laughs> no. And, and you ask those questions so that you can become empowered. Once you're empowered, then you can collaborate. Then you can go seek out additional information for yourself. This one doesn't really um, kind of fit into any category, but I'm gonna say it today because I think it's really important. And it's a big advocacy tip. And that is problems are gonna happen. You know, they're gonna happen and it's okay. Sometimes in a disagreement, you think you're at impasse. You think you can't get anywhere. You think that you have a hard no or the school has a hard no and it's just not gonna work out. And you might have to go to due process. You might have to schedule a mediation. You know, you might be looking at um, court of some, some um, case, some fashion. Um, and that feels really hard. Or you might be frustrated with something that the IEP team says, you know, we, that's not an IEP decision and we can't talk about that here. This is like this rosy team, um, but unfortunately you have to go to that part of the district and you might not have a great result in the other part of the district. Um, and if that happens, it's okay. It is absolutely okay. And I would venture to say in my office, I always say no doesn't mean no. It just means either give me some time or let me think about that creatively. I think we can work, work through it because that's the way that I work. Um, but if you have an impasse or if you have a complaint, stay off of social media. Because when you get on social media, you make it 10 times worse. Because what happens on social media is people pile on. They all say, oh boy, I have that at my district. Or, oh boy, I know that because I have that same fifth grade teacher too. And all of a sudden it all kind of piles on. And guess who sees that? The school. 
Of course the school sees that because you're friends with other people that go to the school and the superintendent sees it and everybody sees it. And how does that impact the team? The team that you're on, your team, negatively. So if you can stay off of social media, don't complain about it. Not the subtle stuff, not the overt stuff. Stay off of social media if you can. A um, kind of partner to that, um, to that piece of suggestion or to that piece of advice is emails. So in today's day and age, we send emails like somebody writes you something you don't like it, sent. And then you, you fire something off. And it's fired off and the next morning you wake up and you think, hmm, I probably could have said that differently. And if you probably could have said it differently, you maybe should have waited 24 hours. So I always tell my clients to pretend like an email came on the Pony Express. Pretend like some guy came on a horse and um, knocked on your door and opened a scroll and said, hear ye, hear ye, here is a message from somebody with whom you disagree and you read it from the scroll and you think, okay, I've got it. Now, if your message came on a scroll, you couldn't have said to the horseman, hey, wait there for, for 45 minutes. I've got to go get another scroll and my, um, my fountain pen and my ink and my ink blotter and my wax and my wax stamp. And I can't sit there and dip into the um, ink and write and dip into the ink and write. I'm not going to send a letter like that. Kind of pretend like it was back in those times. And like you can't have the horseman wait to carry the email back in cyberspace. Give yourself, I don't know, an hour, a day. I like 24 hours. Give yourself some time. It might be super helpful and actually super healing to write that email really quickly. But I always recommend send it to yourself, send it to your spouse, send it to your parents. Don't even put the, the school person in the to box because you might accidentally hit send um, and give it some time so that you really can be strategic in your response to an email or in your um, you know question if you're the one that's starting the conversation. Okay, so that's number four. See yourself as a team member and be a team member throughout the entire process. The number five, if I could give you one tip about special education, it's number five. So if you have um, kind of tuned out, if you're taking your walk and, and you see a neighbor and you're talking to a neighbor, hit pause and wait until you can concentrate on this last tip. Okay, here's number five. Communicate, communicate, communicate. Listen you know your child. The school, if they've been there a while, they probably know your child pretty well, but they don't know what you did in the summer. They don't know what you did on the weekend. They don't know um, what the doctor said. They aren't doing all those rounds. And similarly, you don't know how they did on the math test. You don't know how they did on the spelling test. You don't know who they sat by at lunch. And if you expect that kind of communication, you should fill in the puzzle from your perspective as well. So, some really easy communication tips. One is an all about me book. I like to give one at the beginning of the year to anybody that's gonna to touch my kid. Special education, general education, special area teachers, instructional assistants, the principal, the counselor, anybody that is going to interact with my child, I do an all about me book. 
I do actually have a freebie on my website. Um, and if you're listening to this a long time from 2020, it might not still be on my website. You can contact me and I'll send you an example of an All About Me book. Um, what are All About Me books? They just kind of give like the the background information to the child, um, disability, um, what the child's working on for that year, some information about the child's support team, that kind of stuff. That's really important information to go to the school team. So consider sending an All About Me book to everybody. I also recommend that you ask the teacher to put it in their sub plan so that if there's a substitute teacher, they've got the information about the All About Me book as well. Um, next, I also recommend a back to school email. Now these, you know, in elementary school are accompanied by this All About Me book, or, you know, even for high schoolers and middle schoolers, sometimes they're accompanied in the same email as the All About Me book, but you might just have like specific little things that you want to tell them about. Um, so like a new behavior that's come up, or if you work with your child on their goals, um, maybe just the progress on their goals. Or, hey, I forgot to tell you that the peer tutor um, was a great babysitter this summer and they've got this great relationship now. And so, um, you know, you might want to pair them together, that kind of thing. If your child's in middle school and high school and on an IEP, even if your child is verbal and a great self-advocate, even if your child's disability is dyslexia and it is limited to um, reading difficulties, I recommend that every single year, including senior year, you send a message to all six or seven or eight teachers that the child has saying, my child has dyslexia and this is how dyslexia affects my child. And it could be that basic, but at least you've given them that one puzzle piece. And in addition to that, they know that you are empowered enough as a team member to weigh in and to start the conversation. Maybe they'll send communication back to you as well. So that's a big tip that I recommend. Um, I also recommend sending, I call them Sunday emails. And um, I send a Sunday email almost every single Sunday. I actually have a calendar reminder to do it. So my Jack is verbal now, he's in the fourth grade. Um, but he might not go to school and say, we got a dog over the weekend. Or, um, yeah, I've eaten at the such and such restaurant. I went there with my cousins last weekend. He might not say those things. He might not say his cousin's names. But if they're reading a story and the story's character has the same name as a cousin, he might say, oh, Carter. And the teachers are going to be like, Carter, why are you screaming out Carter? But if they know, oh, we went to dinner with Carter on Saturday, then they're going to say, oh, yeah, Jack, that's right. You have, a, you have a cousin named Carter. You made a connection in the story. Good job. And then they can reinforce the, the lesson that he's having. So those kind of communications are really important. They show some of the things that you do. They show the child's interest. They show any medical concerns. You know, sometimes it's just like, a paragraph on this is what we did this weekend. But in addition to showing that content, it also keeps the communication alive, particularly if you're expecting communication back from school. You're setting a good example and you're setting the tone for future communication. I like to send three or four pictures with mine. I think it helps to kind of show um, the, whole, the whole picture. Um, in addition to that, other things that you want to communicate, um, you know, for 
um, you know, just kind of general purposes, any new diagnoses, changes in medication, stresses at home, lack of sleep, um, marriage troubles, that kind of stuff, grandma, grandpa moved in, you definitely want to communicate um, those things. And then anytime you have any other information about your child from another professional, like um, another therapist or a doctor or something like that, you want to communicate again so that the school team has the entire picture of the child and we're kind of filling in all the pieces of the child. So let's review our five things. Be involved in not only IEP meetings, but also your child's actual education. Have a basic understanding of the law. Keep good records. See yourself as a team member and communicate, communicate, communicate. If you follow those strategies, you will be a very effective advocate for your child that gets special education services.